Thanks for downloading this podcast from Teacher Magazine. I'm Dominique Russell. As a teacher, how can you best manage when a student in your classroom makes an inappropriate comment in the middle of the lesson, catching you off guard and disrupting other students too? What about when this behaviour happens in the playground? And what if the comments that they're making are offensive? In this episode of Behaviour Management, we unpack these questions in depth with our two guests, Senior Lecturer and Course Leader for the Master of Applied Behaviour Analysis at Monash University, Erin Leaf and Russell Fox, lecturer in behaviour analysis, also from Monash University. We're also going to delve into how school leaders can best support their staff in this area in this episode. It's a bit of a longer discussion today, so let's jump straight in. Erin and Russ, thanks for joining us for this episode of Behaviour Management. An issue that we know is common in classrooms, which can be pretty confronting and difficult to deal with for teachers, is when a student makes an inappropriate comment in the middle of a lesson. So that might be something racist, sexist, homophobic, or using a swear word. It's probably best to delve into why this sort of behaviour might occur to begin with before we go into responding to it. So is there any research to indicate why a student might act in this way at school? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's great to start with a discussion of some of the reasons why these behaviors might happen at school. And we can get some good information from research on sort of typical child development. So it's important first and foremost to remember that kids are like little sponges. They soak up everything they see and hear and experience around them. So the first thing we need to think about is where in the big wide world are kids seeing these behaviors, both inside and outside of school? So think about the types of activities that kids might engage with outside of the classroom. For example, spending time on social media, playing video games, watching TV shows, listening to music, or spending time with their older siblings and friends. And I think that it's clear that they're just seeing these behaviors modeled around them in the world that we live in. And it's likely that they're going to model the behaviors that they see. And that's how kids learn. They learn through observation and they learn by imitating what they see around them. And it's also important to remember that kids are risk takers. And this is a normal part of child development. As children learn and grow, they will try on different behaviors and they'll say different things and as a result experience different consequences. And often we start to see very young children use swear words or inappropriate words because they're exploring language. They might be testing on a new word or perhaps trying to understand its meaning. So those are some considerations from the area of child development, but we also need to think about not just what the behavior looks like. For example, the student said a specific inappropriate word, but we need to look below the surface to better understand why these behaviors are happening. And so you may have heard us talk about this before, but we use the word function when we talk about the why. So let's think about an iceberg. 
What we see on the surface is what the behavior looks like. For example, swearing. But this doesn't actually tell us much about why the behavior is occurring. So we need to go underwater to see the bigger picture. And to get to the why, we have to think about what is the student maybe trying to communicate or express to us? So it could be that the student is feeling really frustrated or overwhelmed and swearing or using an inappropriate comment is essentially a way to say, hey, I need some help or hey, I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now. So it's a way the student has learned to express their emotions or the student could be looking to get a reaction from other students. In some cases, it might be a positive reaction like laughter from peers, or it might be a way to get other students to just bugger off. And it might actually help the student get out of doing things that they don't want to do. So by swearing and it being quite confrontational to the teacher, the teacher could in essence remove the child from the classroom or remove the instructional demand. So it's important to keep in mind that sometimes when we hear this type of language from children, it's actually really normal even though it can be difficult and not very nice. But it's through trying out different behaviors and experiencing the consequences of their actions that kids learn the boundaries and they learn what type of behaviors might pay off in certain contexts and what behaviors are acceptable in other contexts. So bear in mind that your students may not realize the inappropriateness of their language. They might tell you that they heard the words or they think the words are okay because they heard them used by friends or parents or on television. And we do tend to see an increase in behaviors like swearing in kids between the ages of five and 12. But as students grow into adolescence, they often develop what I like to call audience control. In other words, they start to learn who they can use those words in front of and who they shouldn't. So, um, Teens might also view swearing as a sign of maturity. They might say, see that dropping the F-bomb makes them feel more adult and cool. So there's lots of reasons why you might see these behaviors. And many of the reasons have nothing to do with children wanting to intentionally harm their classmates or teachers, even though it can feel like that sometimes. And I think one of the challenges here as teachers is... Um, to know when and where and, and how to reflect on the things that Erin's just talked about. Um, the teachers are right in the thick of it. And so to know that there are sort of different uh, functions of behavior, that behavior might be communicating different things or it might be in response to a, a, a situation, um, to, to kind of do that reflection and um, problem solving in the moment can be really, really hard for teachers. And so if you're really familiar with this idea or experienced at thinking functionally about behavior, um, you might be able to assess uh, the conditions and the functions of behavior in the moment. But that's if you're really, really experienced. And for a lot of teachers, we haven't had enough training in this type of thinking. So uh, experienced teachers might be asking questions uh, like, um, what happened in this environment before the behavior occurred? Or was this in response to work, a request or a demand, or in the presence of a peer? Um, you know, because th th those questions are really trying to understand the relationship between the behavior and the classroom environment. You know, th that reflection from experienced teachers would be things like, what's changing in the environment as a result of this behavior? Um, how are others responding to it? What might they be gaining from this environment in this moment? What might they be getting away from in this environment in this moment? But again, this, is a, this can be a really tough juggle. If you're not familiar with this functional of un understanding of behavior, I would suggest 
just to stay curious about the behavior. If we stay curious about it, we, we're more likely to um, be open and empathetic. But ultimately, these questions are really best asked by the teacher in reflection after we've managed a situation, after we've, we've responded. Um, because ultimately our, our job as teachers is to maintain safe and productive learning environments. Uh, we're not asking teachers to um, get out a, a, a psychologist's couch. You know, we're not asking teachers to, you know, pull a therapist's hat on and spend 15, 20 minutes in, in the session um, engaging in, in, in therapy in the classroom. We're teachers and we haven't been necessarily prepared to do that. If you have the skill set to think functionally, then give it a go. If you don't, then maintain a safe and supportive environment. And we'll talk about this later on. And we can then um, reflect on this uh, after the event has occurred and help us to plan to avoid this in future. So our priority is to support the student and the rest of the class. And we might need to do some of this deeper thinking a bit later on. Let's look at the example of this behaviour occurring in the classroom first and let's think about a student who calls out something inappropriate in the middle of a lesson. It's not directed at anyone in particular but it's clearly disruptive to other students and it's caught the teacher by surprise. Can you talk through how a teacher can approach responding to this scenario? My very first recommendation is for the teacher to model the behaviours that they wish to see in their students. So if a student appears dysregulated and is acting out in the classroom, I encourage the teacher to take a breath and model calm and regulated behavior, even if that's not what they're feeling on the inside. So again, remember that our students are little sponges and they model what they see. So often what happens is that kids become escalated or they engage in an unwanted behavior and all the adults in the room become really stressed out and frustrated and escalated. So in this moment, what we're now modeling to kids is how to freak out instead of how to calm down and get back on track. So my first recommendation is just to stay calm, but I'll turn it over to Russ to talk more specifically about what, what teachers can do. Erin, Erin's so right about this. And I'll talk in a second about a few practical steps that we can take, but these practical steps really do need us to model that calm. So as we're engaging in the practical steps, um, what Erin's talked about is, is really critical that we can sort of put, put, put that, um, that sort of coat of calm on as we go about it. So practically, uh, in situations like this, I'd suggest that teachers correct first, check, reteach and or redirect at the end. So creating positive classroom environments does not mean that we do not correct inappropriate behavior in our rooms. So sometimes I think the teachers might find themselves questioning whether they can correct student behavior. And, and we might second guess ourselves here because we hear a lot of different voices. You know, we, we might wonder about parent emails or, or complaints. We, we might've corrected a student in the past and it's gone badly. Um, or, or we might have seemingly contradictory advice floating around in our head. So I, I know that I've talked to a lot of teachers about maintaining positive, um, a high ratio of positive comments in the class. So thinking about the, uh, the, the ratio of positive to corrective or negative statements in the class, and there's some really good research on the impact of these ratios. And we hear things like four to one positive comments to negative or corrective comments. Um, and uh, Paul Calderella has some really good research on this. 
And I believe it was on the podcast not that long ago. So we might hear this and, and sort of think like, oh, well, if I'm to do four to one or five to one of positives to correctives, uh, can I correct behavior or am I starting to wreck my ratios? I know I'm meant to be positive. And, and so we get a bit puzzled about like, what do I actually do about it? And so we hear all these different things and sometimes we, we, we second guess ourselves about whether we should correct. But creating a positive climate within our environment does not mean we do not correct inappropriate behavior. We need to. It's a critical component of our job, but how we do it is just so important. So we suggest a three-step error correction procedure. So making sure we, we complete each step gives us the best chance to improve our student responses in the future. So the first step is to identify and correct the error by reminding of our expectation in the classroom. So this idea of calling out, like, and, and, and before that, the, the actual correction depends on the expectations of our school and of our classrooms. So common um, relevant expectations that, that we see are things like be respectful or be responsible or do our best. And so linking the behavior correction to these expectations or to the positive behaviors that we want to see that have been defined in our expectations is really important. That's the first step. So to give an example, I'll, I'll use you know my name because you know I had a bit of fun in, in, in school. So it might be something like, Russ, that does not sound like how we show respect during learning time. We show respect by working quietly or putting up our hand to talk. So I've directed it to the expectation of our room. I've stated what isn't happening and I'm pointing to the behavior we wanna see. So step one is to correct and to direct that correction explicitly to the expectations of the room. The second step is to provide an opportunity for the, the student to demonstrate the behavior that we want to see. Can you show me what being respectful looks like? And so I'm asking this now, we might get a, a cheeky comment like, yes, or <laughs> they might actually engage in. If they say something like, yes, I can show you, great, then show me, thank you. So the second step is to provide an opportunity to actually respond to the correction with the behavior we want to see. And the third step is to then provide reinforcement or feedback to the student after they respond. That's it, Russ. Thanks for working quietly or for putting up your hand. Or you can say, thanks. Love that you're working quietly now. That's spot on. We don't have to get flowery or, or you know, too, uh, like a fusif in our praise. We just have to specifically state the behavior that they're now engaging in and let them know that it's made a difference. So this might be done really quietly with a student. So sometimes I might do this in a classroom. If it's, we've got a, a, a really well-established environment, I might do this across the room to the student, or I might move to where the student is. And sometimes when this kind of disruptive stuff happens in the class, um, the heart rate can go up in the room. We can sort of feel hot and it's starting to, oh, my lesson, I don't want it to derail. So I might use the walk to the table to where the student um, is sitting to deliver behavior specific praise to all of the students I pass on the way. Sometimes we as teachers are concerned about when behavior occurs in our room, we spend all our time trying to correct behavior for students that are engaging problem behavior and the other students might miss out. So we can use time on our way to manage behavior to give the other students um, a, a strong message that what they're doing is noticed, that their behavior is important 
and it continues to reinforce them for engaging in the behaviors that we would hope to see across our room. So we're not missing them and we're letting them know that it's okay um, and that we're going to manage the situation. So um, once we actually get to the student, we might lower our tone of voice and engage in the error correction there. We might be um, with a smile really calmly. So I, I'm sure there are actually a lot of teachers that are listening to this and going, well, that kind of error correction, that's what I do with my academic errors. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're getting to the point here where we, we want to make it really clear that what we're doing is teaching. When we're dealing with behavioral incidents like this, we're correcting errors, we're teaching the behavior we want to see, and then we're reinforcing students for engaging in that. So it, it might just be like what I um, what I would do with the student who's you know having trouble with identifying uh, nouns in a sentence. So we identify the error, we provide feedback or correction, and we get the student to provide um, to have another go at it. Then we provide um, reinforcement. So the three steps here are really important. Teachers are really good at step one. And if I think back to um, some of my recent classroom experiences, I might've been really good at spotting a behavior occurring and correcting that behavior using a don't do or a no, not that, or a we don't do that. But then I haven't given the student the opportunity to respond with the, with the actual behavior we wanna see. And then I haven't given um, the direct feedback or praise. And those steps are really important. If we're thinking about the positive to corrective ratio that we talked about earlier, if I'm giving the student an opportunity to engage in the desired behavior and I'm reinforcing them for doing it, even though I'm delivering a corrective statement, I'm also delivering a positive statement. So you can correct, you must correct, but you will, if you do it in a way that allows the student to engage in the behavior we want to see, and then we reinforce that behavior, we still maintain that really, really positive and instructive classroom climate. So we need to remember all three. And once we get used to this kind of process, you might not need to do all this stuff verbally. You might be able to use nonverbal cues. You might be able to gesture to our expectations. I've, you know, I see teachers expertly kind of narrow their eyes and sort of look sideways at the student and then point to the expectations and you know, mind putting their hand up. And then when the student does it, they give a thumbs up. So we can do all three steps of the error correction procedure without even saying a word. But we do need all three steps. So the check component, once we've done the error correction, the step that's often missed is we we don't check whether the student knows what they're actually learning, the content or the task. So I would straight away check with a question, a checking for understanding question that requires the student to answer with um, specific content or task knowledge. Not something from, from prior learning, not something from last week's lesson, but this one right here. So I use um, the idea of teaching here. So if this is a lesson on nouns, I might look at the student's page and ask, which, which of the words in this sentence is an example of a proper noun? And if the student's response shows that they don't understand, then I reteach. Moving away with a student that doesn't understand the task after I've corrected a disruptive behavior is asking for more disruptive behavior. If the student doesn't know what they're going, what they're doing with the learning, then the chances of them engaging in more disruptive behavior is really, really high. So we reteach. We reteach the content to the student in that moment. And so Erin's discussion earlier about what behavior might be about, well, if we do a checking for understanding question, it's a really good opportunity for us to see whether this is about the learning. And then we can reteach and get on with things. 
If the student can tell what the lesson is, then I would redirect them back to their work and remind them of our expectations for the learning and maybe what might happen if they don't complete the task by the end of the session. Now, let's add in another layer where a comment might be directed at another student or the teacher themselves. How does this change how a teacher responds? So I think here we need to first recognize that this puts, puts teachers in a gray area. So we have minor inappropriate behavior, disruptive behavior in the classroom, which teachers can really develop their skill and com uh, confidence to redirect. But then we have other types of behaviors that really threaten the safety and well-being of everybody in the classroom environment. And those behaviors could be classified as bullying or harassment or just um, really can negatively um, impact other students or the teacher. And so often teachers find themselves in the gray area and often when dealing with these more major behaviors that pose a risk, teachers feel tension between, on one hand, um, supporting the psychological safety and well-being of all the students in the classroom, and on the other hand, continuing to include the student who's displaying the behavior to ensure that that student can access their right to an education. Mm. And there isn't an easy answer. There isn't a quick fix to that challenge that teachers find themselves in. So we just want to identify that first and say that, yeah, that's real. And we recognize that. But I'll turn it over to Russ to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. And the, the best responses um, for teachers are structural responses in this instance. So th this comes down to what kind of systems and structures do we have in our school to identify what is a major behavior and what is a minor behavior? These are conversations that really need to be had with the whole staff group and everyone on the same page. Um, so I, I, I think if, if, if we're aware of our school context and if we have this clear idea of what would constitute a major behavior and what would constitute a minor behavior, then it really helps us make decisions about, okay, well, what am I going to work on myself as a, as a teacher in my room? And when do I send up a flare for some additional help? And so the actual processes of what we would do in terms of like responding to um, this next level of behavior are, are still really consistent. We're still correcting first using the same kind of correction procedure. We still then check um, and we might check think about thinking about social learning. So we might actually start to ask some questions to determine whether the student understands the social expectations really clearly in this instance. We're not assuming that they have the skills. Um, and then it would be a reteach or redirect. But some of this reteaching and redirecting might require some additional support. So I think when we're talking about majors and minors and we're thinking about sort of a, a referral pathway, I, I, I do want to be really, really clear that we're, we're, we're not talking about a three strikes and you're out kind of thing. We're not talking about, um, you know, like here, here is the, um, you're, you're on the escalation ladder and once you get to step two, well then you're, you know, you're booted out of the room. Now some schools might have systems like that. And if that's your school system, then you need to work within the system of your school. But what we're talking about really are systems that help teachers make really difficult judgments about which behavior might require greater support more detailed assessment, more time and resourcing required in um, support of that instruction, and a greater level of skill required from staff. 
So there might be a situation which is just above the pay grade and expertise of a, a beginning teacher, for example, in which case we should seek help and there should be a clear pathway for teachers to seek help and to get support for that student behavior. So it's not a, it's not a three strikes and you're out. It's a, it's a process to understand um, how to better support a student's needs. And there might actually be a requirement around a behavior like this for more time to restore relationships. The staff might need time to plan. They might actually need time to support students who have um, been affected by the behavior. And they might actually need time to um, build that re those relationships back in the classroom. Um, uh, so the core practices um, in responding to a situation like this really are, uh, I'm not going to go back over the, the error correction procedure, but we're doing error correction first as we, as we um, make these decisions. We're still going through those same steps. Um, so the, the, the procedures themselves aren't entirely different. We just need to be thinking about who should be doing them and with what support. Now, changing the setting in this example again, and let's say something inappropriate is said in the playground, how could a teacher on duty respond to this? Yeah, it's definitely similar. Uh, sometimes the behavior doesn't actually occur in the classroom anymore, but it occurs on the playground. And the student has now perhaps learned that there are these classroom expectations and they are able to adjust their behavior in that environment. So they're able to participate in academic activities, they're able to express their frustration and get help in different ways, and they've experienced those error corrections from the classroom teacher. So swearing and other inappropriate comments no longer occur in the classroom, but out on the yard, it's party time. So now the student is in a completely new environment that's much less structured with a lot more peers to impress. And so the student might have a new audience. They also might not have a relationship with the teacher on yard duty. So they don't actually um, have a history with understanding the expectations and experiencing those corrections in a different environment. So they may be more likely to push the boundaries. But the good news is that teaching and reinforcing expected behavior can occur in all settings. Yeah, and I think that um, uh, Aaron's spot on. So essentially we're gonna use the same kind of procedures again. So teaching and reinforcing behavior, th that is what we're talking about with the um, error correction procedure. It's just how we deliver it might be different. If we don't know students coming in cold and being like, that's not the expected behavior, you know, what does safe look like in the playground um, is likely to be met with, who are you mate? And so approaching it with a level of curiosity and you know, I'm not <laughs> suggesting that this is how the listeners of, of the, the teacher podcast um, are going to be approaching it, but it's just to stay curious and maybe to ask some more questions. Um, one of the first things I often do when I'm in, in, in the yard with students that I don't know is to introduce myself. Hi, I'm Russ. Um, what's your name? Um, how, how do we go about this part of the yard play? How do we go about moving about uh, moving around the yard? I mean, some high schools where you, where you have um, sort of year nine and 10 kids running around corners and things like that, you know, I've sort of bumped into someone. I'm like, oh, hi, I'm Russ. What's your name? Are you okay? Um, how do you move around the yard here? Because that didn't feel particularly safe. Can you show me around the next corner? So there are lots of ways that we can... Um, adapt our practices um, to, to work with students that we're less familiar with. It's just those relation build, relationship building kind of things and to really remain curious. But the, again, the steps are really, really consistent. 
Are instances like these something teachers can work with students to prevent or is it more a matter of being prepared to deal with them if and when they arise? So absolutely prevention is key. So there are a few easy and practical things that we can do to prevent or minimize these behaviors from occurring. So the first is that we should really focus on developing positive and trusting relationships with students. Students are more likely to thrive in environments where they feel seen and heard and they feel like they belong. So especially at the start of a new school year, taking that time to really get to know your students and their strengths and their interests and incorporating all of that into your lesson planning can go a long way. Next, we recommend establishing and teaching positive classroom expectations. And better yet, involve the students in developing the classroom expectations so they feel a sense of shared ownership over what happens in the classroom and call out the students that display positive and expected behaviors, right? Get that four to one ratio of positive to corrective feedback going right at the beginning of the of the school year in the classroom. And also encourage students to call each other out for doing the right thing. Boost those positive statements in your classroom even more. We also recommend establishing and teaching classroom routines. So teachers should really think about what they want their students to be able to do from the moment they walk through the door, first thing in the morning, and make sure that students actually have the skills to do those types of things. It's important to remember that transit transitions and routines, um, the things that happen in between academic lessons tend to be less structured and kids are more likely to get off task and perhaps get into mischief or engage in unwanted behaviors during those less structured times. Um, so it's important to focus on ensuring that kids know the routines, the routines are predictable, the kids have the skills to fully participate and that will really cut down on those disruptions. Again, we want teachers to model and richly reinforce what I call the positive opposite to unwanted behavior. So for example, if you notice that a student is swearing when they make a mistake and it's a way that they're expressing their frustration, teach them a different word that they can use in that context that helps them achieve the same outcome. And finally, as Russ mentioned before that good classroom behavior management is really just good teaching. And so we want to make sure that when we're delivering teaching to our students, that we're providing our students with lots of scaffolding of um, the learning process when learning new skills, that they're receiving direct instruction in foundational academic skills, that students have lots of opportunities to respond and actively engage with the material. And they also receive lots of feedback, both positive and corrective at all times. So the take home here really is that students will thrive in classrooms that are predictable, that are safe and structured, and that meet their needs. So it's important that teachers, you know, work within their schools to develop and implement a whole continuum of strategies that will support the behavioral success of all students, such as the preventative strategies that I just discussed, and the what we might call the stop, correct, um, represent the teachable moment, and then redirect the error correction um, as a reactive strategy that Russ previously talked about. 
For school leaders listening to this episode, is there anything in particular they should keep in mind in terms of behaviour management policy development, covering instances like the ones we've discussed today? I think this is such an interesting question. We've talked a bit about um, the school level stuff um, throughout uh, this podcast. And and really, all of the things that Erin described, all the things we've talked about um, throughout, the prevention steps in particular, are so much more effective and more efficient for teachers if they're part of a consistent, systematic, school-wide approach. And I I know we can be really worn out in um, education from all the initiatives um, that we see coming in and see off, I'll add. We see, we see and see off more um, new initiatives in education than lots of other professions. But there is an approach, a, a systematic um, framework for delivering the supports that we've described today, the prevention things that, um, that Aaron described just before, and some of the other functional thinking and more targeted responsive stuff um, to more significant or serious behaviors. And that system is um, school-wide positive behavior support. So this is also known as positive behavior for learning. And this really does provide a structure for school teams to implement, assess, and adapt the positive and proactive behavior supports we've talked about. Now, if the appetite's not there for such a school change, um, then I would say it's most important for teachers to understand very clearly, my message to school leaders, it's most important for teachers to understand very clearly what behaviours would constitute a minor behaviour, one that they're working on and supporting as part of their role, one where they do the follow-up and might determine some classroom-level um, consequences, um, or one that actually requires greater support um, where they would send that flare-up for help. It can be really challenging for teachers if they're required to work this out for themselves. And also without this, school leaders themselves, if you're a principal listening here, you you might notice a lack of consistency across your school in how staff respond. Sometimes you may be called in as a leader to support behavior that's disruptive, but with really good prevention strategies or um, preventive behavior supports like we've described, it might actually be better defined as a minor behavior. Meanwhile, there are other teachers who are working tirelessly in their classrooms to support behavior that actually really needs more comprehensive team-based support. So I think one of our recommendations is um, instead of immediately resorting to punitive and uh, reactive disciplinary actions, um, schools should really stay curious about their students and the reasons why um, they might be dealing with behaviors that are sort of more minor or more major um, and what new skills they ultimately need to teach when supporting all students. Um, But if If teachers notice or schools notice that swearing um, or inappropriate language seems to be a pretty pervasive uh, problem across the whole school or um, they're having more major um, instances of this behavior, then putting a team together within the school to solve the problem and working through a process of data-based problem solving can be really, really helpful. So really um, sharing the responsibility of generating solutions and evaluating solutions. So with teaming, it's generally about who's going to be part of the team. You might have a school leader, you might have a well-being support person, you might have a few teachers to talk about how big is this problem and when and where are we seeing these behaviors and why do we think these behaviors are happening? The next step would be to propose some solutions and think about what solutions are gonna be practical, 
what can we implement? What's going to be an, um, a challenge with implementing these proposed solutions? Then implementation, so making sure everybody in the school has the skills to implement the solution to the problem. And then finally evaluating, how is the solution working? And um, the team can spend some time looking at the sources of data that the teachers might have access to within their school to be able to determine how well the solution is working. That could be things like attendance, um, exit, you know, number of times students are being exited from the classroom, um, general teacher perceptions of, you know, the safety and, and climate within their classrooms. So um, we really encourage, you know, teams uh, schools to build teams to solve these sorts of problems. Um, but we have really enjoyed speaking with everyone today and we always welcome uh, people coming to us directly by email if they have certain questions or they'd like to chat more about this area. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out to Erin and Russell, you can find their email details in the transcript for this podcast under the podcast tab on our website, teachermagazine.com. You'll also be able to find some links there for some related readings for this topic. If you'd like to catch up on the Paul Calderella podcast episode Russ mentioned, it's episode seven in our behaviour management series, and the episode is titled Effects of Teacher Praise and Reprimands. You can find it by searching our podcast feed for Behaviour Management Episode 7 wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel and while you're there, we'd love if you could rate and review us.